0: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. As a speech and language pathologist and life coach for more than 25 years, Sigoyna Tansman has coached thousands of people in the best brain practices for optimum performance. She draws upon her international life experiences from having worked in Italy and Germany, as well as on both the east and west coasts of the US. She recognizes that worldwide human beings share the same core needs, a purpose to wake up in the morning, to grow and contribute, and to create meaning in their lives. She's trained with legendary coaching gurus, Tony Robbins, Dr. Dawson Church, Brooke Costello, and Mitch Matthews, and is a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming. She is also the author of best-selling book, Hope After Stroke for Caregivers and Survivors, The Holistic Guide to Getting Your Life Back. Welcome, Segoina. A few things to talk about before we get started with today's episode. If you have not subscribed to my newsletter yet, I have some exciting things coming out in the next weeks, months, unclear how long it's gonna take me to get it together, but there'll be some stuff coming out and I don't want you to miss it. So head on over to DrAmyRobbins.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And I also wanted to tell everybody about an amazing opportunity with IANS. IANS is the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and their 2020 conference is online. This year's theme is Unlocking the Healing Wisdom of NDEs, and the program is packed to the brim with fantastic speakers, and experts to guide newcomers and seasoned experiences alike through the mysterious worlds of near-death experiences, spirits, and the afterlife. This conference, again, is online via Zoom, August 14th to 16th, and you can visit iands.org for more info. That is I-A-N-D-S And many of the speakers who have been on this show in the past are also members of ians. It's an amazing organization, that really promotes the work, so much of the work that I'm doing on this show in terms of bringing to light many people's spiritual experiences and spiritually transformative experiences. So head on over and check that out. And now to today's show.
1: Hi, Dr. Amy.
0: So this is a little different for me on the show because I normally – I've not had anybody on who talks about what it's like working with people who have survived illnesses or who are going through an illness. And I know primarily you work with stroke survivors, but it seems like a lot of the concepts in your book really relate to or can relate to survivors of many illnesses. So can you talk about how sort of these concepts relate to this
1: notion of life, death, and the space between all of it? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, you know, whether you're a stroke survivor or someone suffering another kind of illness, you're a person first. And I always say, you don't have to have a brain injury to damage your brain. You can do that by the thoughts you think and the language that you use. And, you know, all human beings benefit from using healthy brain practices. We teach our kids to take care of their dental hygiene. Wouldn't it be awesome to instill that same vigilance with our mental hygiene so we could prepare ourselves with that growth mindset and resilience that we need for all of the various life experiences that will be inevitable. You know, of course, not everybody suffers a devastating illness or catastrophe, but we all experience challenges, setbacks, losses. These are part of our life experience. And I'm a firm believer in preparation versus reparation. In other words, it's easier to prevent a problem than to repair one. And the way I do that is through managing your mindset, establishing a regular practice of mental wellness. And one of the ways to do that is this concept I have, I call WTF, standing for words, thoughts, and feelings. So we estimate that we have about 70,000 thoughts a day, and they're obviously not all within our conscious control. But our thoughts create our feelings, which direct our actions and ultimately create our results. And I think there's a misperception, especially during illness of any kind, that there's this waiting zone, this illusionary space between life and death, where life is suspended until one gets better. You know, I'm waiting until. But the reality is it's all life. Eckert totally described it best he said life has no opposite the opposite of death is birth life is eternal
0: well and first of all that's an amazing quote but and i want to just sort of speak to how applicable this is to what's going on right now in this world it's like we're all we're in the midst of covid I feel like there's this sense of, okay, we're all waiting. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for a vaccine. We're waiting for things to go back to normal. But in that waiting, how are we putting our lives on hold versus still living our lives every day?
1: Exactly. And you also used a word that I use a lot, which is you were waiting for things to go back to normal, but nothing ever goes back. We live life forward. And it is what we are doing in this time, in this space every day. You know, another expression is people say, I'm just killing time. That is the worst thing you could possibly do. There's a phrase you need to get out of your language because, I mean, what's the only thing that we all only have that equalizes all all of us. And that's time and to kill it. Oh my (laughs) gosh.
0: Well, yeah. And to think about this notion of like, when, you know, when we're waiting or norm, get back to normal, what are we even using as the barometers to, to to describe that? Like who's to say that that was normal and this isn't, it's just diff it's just different.
1: It is different. And the reinvention that is possible during this period of time is extraordinary because we are on pause from what we normally, routinely, unconsciously did. And now we have this opportunity to be conscious, to be awake, to be alert, to be decisive and um, to be intentional.
0: And isn't that sort of what illnesses do? do to us ultimately? Like they really, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot pretty firsthand, is they really push us to face our mortality in a way that in everyday life we don't and to think about what matters. So how do you see that in in the work that you do?
1: That's absolutely the case. You're, you're a thousand percent correct. And, you know, when we talk about this with patients whose life has been interrupted or you know, put on a different path, it is all about taking a look at where we are and where we're going. And, you know, where we've been informs us, but it doesn't dictate. And when we open our lens to the possibility of what else, what's next, what could be, we, we, we resource ourselves in a completely different way. As long as we stay with what has already happened. I mean, if you take it down to, sometimes I talk about this, uh, you get a flat tire, right? And you're standing out there and you can look at that tire and you go, oh crap, this tire is flat, I'll never fix it. Well, at a certain point, if you want to move forward, you have to say the, the tire is flat. Now What? Well, I could get another tire. I could call somebody for help. And you start to move into this, I don't even want to say problem-solving mode, but solution finding mode is really what you want to do is what is your ultimate outcome? Do you want to be stuck or do you want to move forward?
0: Mm. So when you're working with patients, you really talk in, in your book about holistic when you're dealing with the survivor of any illness, but I think this is actually really important in life. When you look
1: holistically, what does that look like? So holistic to me means understanding that I'm engaging with a person, not just their illness or the parts of their illness. You know, I've worked in hospitals and rehab settings and in my, um, physical therapy mode, occupational therapy and speech therapy mode, it's common for us to cut the person up into pieces. So speech therapy takes from the neck up, occupational therapy takes from the neck to the trunk, and physical therapy takes from the legs down. And of course we treat as a team and most practitioners are very sensitive to the the humanness of who they're treating, but holistic really means including the emotional, the social and the spiritual parts of that person. So uh, Sir William Osler, who was a Canadian physician and one of the four founding professors of Johns Hopkins Hospital, said it best. He said, it's much more important to know what sort of a patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. And holistic can also mean including a variety of healing modalities, including traditional Western medicine, but other practices that have been the standard of care for thousands of years like Chinese medicine, acupuncture, EFT tapping, mind-body practices, nutrition, and more.
0: Well, and I think to your point, you know, when I've worked with patients who have been diagnosed with an illness and they've already been my patient, I think that they appreciate being seen holistically versus if someone receives a diagnosis of, let's say, cancer, and then they go into some sort of therapy their cancer becomes the thing that you feel like you're treating versus the patient right it's like this something happened to them that resulted in them being this way but they were they were sort of in the process of becoming who they were for however many years before they received that diagnosis. So really looking holistically at the person in addition to the holistic practices that you're talking about is so important.
1: Absolutely. So I had an experience of my husband being in the hospital many years ago. He had an appendicitis attack. And I do remember sitting there and thinking, wow, as a person on the other side of the bed now, so to speak, you know, how easy it is to be reduced to your statistics. So he was patient number whatever. He had a patient number. He was in a room that had a hospital number. He had a bed number. He was the sum of his vital statistics, his blood pressure, his uh, urinary output, his height, his weight, his age. It was just all numbers. It wasn't a human being on that other side. And as practitioners, it is so important to understand these are human beings that we're talking about first and foremost.
0: So how, how do you help people get their lives back after such a devastating illness?
1: Well, first of all, I help them look for and focus on what's working. One of the activities I do with them sometimes to help sort of broaden, widen their lens, I'll get them to look around their room. I say to them, can you find three things that are blue in this room. So they'll look and they'll count three things. And then I said, well, how many red things did you count while you were looking for those things? And they said, well, I didn't see any. And I said, exactly and so it doesn't mean that those red things weren't there when I look at illness we are either focused exclusively on what's wrong or we're also focused a little bit on what's working and it depends on the lens you're looking through as to the questions that you ask and the resources that you Mm -hmm. seek Mm -hmm. so when I finally have enough rapport with them I can ask a pretty deep question and I do say I have to have rapport with them because if I ask this question without that rapport, I'm likely to have something thrown at me. So, for example, you know, I might say to somebody, tell me what's good about this stroke. You know, and their first response after they don't throw anything at me is like, the, like nothing is good. My loved one or I can't walk or talk. I can't work. My life is devastated. And so there are facts in this statement, but... Even some of those, quote, facts are maybe facts of the moment, like the loved one not being able to walk or talk for now, right? But the statement that their lives are devastated is actually subjective. So do they have every reason and justification to feel that way? Of course they do. But the question is, what would they feel or what would they do differently if they chose even a different word than devastated? What if they said, Our lives are in flux and change. How would they go about the recovery and their daily life in a different way than if they presumed their life was devastated?
0: And I love this notion of right now, right? Because it really puts into perspective like, yes, things are bad in this moment, or feel bad in this moment. I'm not even gonna say are bad, right? Cause even that's subjective, but things feel bad in this moment, but this moment is not a permanent state. So how do you do, what, what types of things do you do to instill hope in people who feel hopeless in, in any illness, right? Because I think that there are absolutely periods of time, no matter what your diagnosis is or no matter what your life looks like. I mean, I think again, Right now, there are a lot of people who feel pretty hopeless about life in general. How do you instill a sense of hope?
1: Right. Well, I think that hope truly is the fuel of recovery. Um, Action is the vehicle. But I think the mindset that believes things can get better, even if that means finding acceptance Mm -hmm. and peace when circumstances don't change, that's a huge one. It it takes people time to process acceptance. And I think there's this big confusion with um, acceptance as giving up. Right, Acceptance means that you give up, that it's always going to be this way, so you just have to surrender. But that's not what I see from the patients that I work with. And I have to tell you, Dr. Amy, that it's really my patients that have taught me this. So it's not just me applying this. I, I haven't been there. I haven't done it. So what am I talking about kind of thing? Because I humbly, humbly understand that I haven't experienced what these people have. But they've taught me this. They've taught me that it's not just when things change, that there can be hope, but there can be acceptance at various levels. The idea that you can feel better now in the presence where everything isn't perfect, but can you feel better? Is there such a thing as a reason to get up in the morning, a purpose to give and to contribute. Those are the things that contribute to hope. And I have a little story, if it's okay to tell you. Absolutely. Okay. So I accompanied um, a woman and her husband to a doctor about three weeks after he had been home from the hospital, after one of probably the most devastating strokes I'd ever seen. He was blind, He was mute when I first saw him, absolutely mute. And this was a man in his young 40s. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, in his young 40s. He had three children, um, a wife. He had had an important job. And now he was blind. He was mute. He could walk, but... He just seemed to have no awareness of anything that was even going around. Now, by the time we went to the doctor, he did start to speak a little bit, but none of what he said made any sense. And his wife, as you can well imagine, was distraught. We went to the doctor and she said to the doctor, is he going to get better? And the doctor said, well, I don't want to give you any false hope. He's had a devastating stroke. And she said, well, why are we doing all these therapies then? And and he didn't really answer at that point. But when we left the doctor's office, I pulled her aside and I said, listen, the doctor was accurate in the fact that he's had a very severe stroke. He's got that diagnosis of the facts of right now. Again, we're back to right now. That's the facts of the moment. But, and Les Brown said this once, mm-hmm. I heard him say, Doctors have the diagnosis, God has the prognosis, and we don't know what will happen. And in fact, within about three months period of time, this man went from being a completely dependent on 100% care. He started to, his vision repaired enough that he was able to walk independently to a nearby drugstore. His speech and language communication skills improved enough that he was actually able to purchase an ice cream cone, order that, pay for it, and walk back independently. These are huge, huge things going from a person that was completely 100% dependent uh, within like a three-month period of time. So we we don't know. This this concept of for now means it's maybe impermanent, and hope is As long as there is life, there is hope. And even if that hope means accepting conditions and circumstances as they are and finding a way to feel good, find a way to get up in the morning and have purpose. And I've seen that time and time again with patients, even in the absence of complete recovery.
0: Well, and I think that's an important differentiation to make is that hope doesn't mean you believe that something's possible that isn't, right? I mean, because it's it's almost like you're realistic, but also hopeful. I don't know how else to say it, but that, you know, that they're, like with this woman and her husband that you're talking about, it wasn't like they believed that this was gonna be his, the rest of his life, but maybe they were also realistic about what was possible, that he wasn't gonna, and maybe he has gotten to 100% again, I don't know, but that you're realistic. I guess I'm, I guess I'm asking like how you balance the two, right? Hope with also being realistic about what is possible.
1: Right, well, I think you have to just get up and be in the game that's what you have to do. You have to be in the game because every day changes. We we can't use hope to say, we're looking at 100% recovery. We can say, I'm, I'm, I have hope that I will find a way to be at peace and to feel good. That's what you're really looking for hope mm-hmm. for.
0: So can you speak to some of the brain exercises that you encourage patients to do when they're recovering, but also just in general, like these rituals and things that you talk about that are so useful.
1: Right. I, I like to say we teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. There should be a fourth R, and that's rituals. And that's that daily practice of getting up and preparing yourself for the world. Um, we wouldn't walk out into the world naked. And not preparing ourselves mentally is kind of like walking out into the world um, You know, if you think the first thing you should do in the morning is turn on your TV and watch the news or pick up your phone and check your social media, you're kind of allowing everybody else's opinion to possibly uh, infiltrate your own mind. And I think it's important that we start a day with centering. Uh, with some f- f- some mindfulness some breathing and some preparation now it's kind of like I, I like to call it warming the oven so if you're about to make a cake you can have the best ingredients in the world but that cake is not gonna rise unless you do what Amy
0: you, you got to preheat the
1: oven. You have to preheat the oven. And that's what it's like before you go out into your day. You have to attune yourself to a vibration that you want. And that is one of the ways is sitting down and, and writing a list of three things that you can be grateful for. And if you can't use that word grateful, you can use the word, what can I appreciate? What do I appreciate or what can I appreciate? And the reason being is that that helps you tune your vibration to look for more of the same. You know how when your day gets crappy, it it keeps continuing to get crappy. Mm -hmm. But also when you start to look for something good, more good starts to happen.
0: So how do you differentiate, I like this, between appreciate and grateful?
1: Right. Well, I have to say that sometimes people are resistant to the word gratitude especially in the presence of a lot of challenges it's like what do I have to be grateful for nothing you know everything is not working um, but you could appreciate something you could appreciate the fact that you can smell something good that you've had a warm cup of coffee that somebody held a door open for you taking it down to the most minute level of really looking for what you could appreciate are you sitting in a in a house do you have clothes on. I mean, what could you really appreciate that if you didn't have? I mean, I appreciate my plumbing every day. My God, when your toilet goes out, all of a sudden you appreciate your plumber, don't you? But you don't get up and every day go, thank God my plumbing's working until it doesn't work. (laughs) So I think appreciation is easy to find.
0: Well, and I like that too, an appreciation practice. I think I think you're right. People do get kind of hung up on gratitude as a concept, or it sometimes I think it feels forced for people. Um, but, But to your point, what is one thing that I can appreciate? It's a small shift, but it feels really different.
1: Exactly. That's what I like about everything that I do in this book and in my teaching is these are simple practices, practices that that are not complicated. And we all know that simple doesn't mean easy, Mm -hmm. but it means that it's not complicated. And, you know, we all want a simple answer and then we're given one and then people either dismiss it because it's too simple. (laughs) You know, we know it's simple to drink eight glasses of water a day. But we also know it's not that easy. And so in my practices, I have people paying attention to that. Did I drink water? Did I breathe mindfully? Did I sleep well? Did I connect with community? Did I involve myself in some kind of contribution and growth? These are all parts of, of sacred pillars of well-being and uh, there was one thing else I was going to say about appreciation, and that is, it's not just airy fairy anymore. This is there's tons of science around the benefits of appreciation and gratitude, right down to the brain specs, the MRIs that show positive changes in your brain when you are in a state of gratitude or appreciation.
0: Well, and I think what your work certainly speaks to in my mind is this notion of the neuroplasticity of the brain and the ability for the brain to repair itself. I mean, you see this often or to compensate is how how amazing. I mean, even as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how amazing the brain is in that way.
1: The brain is incredibly neuroplastic. And so Neuroplasticity simply means, if you had to break it down, is whatever you do repeatedly sets up a neural network in your brain. So you do it, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, it becomes an automatic practice. And this can be for good or it can be for ill. So we have to be vigilant of the practices that we do engage in repetitively because those get hardwired into our brain just as easily. Um, So in building a new brain and being conscious and intentional about the healthy brain practices like gratitude practices, mindfulness, breath control practices, sleeping and eating healthfully are all positive brain practices. So
0: do you ever have patients who talk about near-death experiences or spiritually transformative experiences. And how I thought of this question is that I know one of the most famous stroke survivors is Jill Bolte-Taylor. I don't know if you've ever heard her TED talk. (laughs) I'll never forget. I think I saw her on Oprah. And she, she described her experience. And I remember her once saying that she saw a doctor who walked into the room and she couldn't understand him but she she could sense his negative energy and it was and she i think is like a neuropsychologist or i mean she worked in neurology before she had her stroke so this was really fascinating to her do you ever have patients who share experiences like this
1: Yes. And actually, Jill Bolte-Taylor is a neuroscientist from Harvard who was studying the brain um, and working in research actually on schizophrenia because she had a brother that suffered from schizophrenia. And when she had her stroke, one of her comments finally was like, wow, how cool is this? I get to see my stroke from the inside out. How cool Mm. is it that a neuroscientist can study this? So many people have shared their near-death experiences only when I've asked. Nobody ever actually volunteers Mm -hmm. that information. And they often preface their comments with, I don't usually talk about this because it's weird or people say that I'm hallucinating. But when I do ask them about their experiences, many people Mm -hmm. have talked about being out of their bodies, watching everything below them, especially like in the emergency ward. Um, They speak about, that they felt that they were offered a choice of whether they wanted to stay where they were in this other space or go back. Many of them have spoken about how utterly peaceful and safe they felt. And subsequently now, they don't fear death. And others have talked about what Dr. Taylor had talked about too, was they could sense the Feelings of the people that were involved with them, or some of them who patients were thought to be in a comatose state uh, could actually hear what was taking place. And one woman said, you know, she remembered the doctors and the nurses talking about how obese she was and how she wasn't likely to get better. And, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic thing to have happen. Um, mm. And then as far as transformative experiences, I'd love to share this story of one of my patients who is really quite remarkable. And, and her story was really, you know, she went to the eye doctor because she was having migraines. And during her examination, the doctor could see in her eyes that her pressure, her blood pressure was very high. So they called an ambulance right away. She had a stroke in the ambulance. She gets to the hospital and they still can't lower her blood pressure only to find out that she's in acute renal failure. Now, what's interesting about this woman is that 10 years prior to her stroke, she lost a child. A child died while she was breastfeeding this baby. Oh, my God! And this was devastating. And she went into a paralyzing depression. She had one son already, and a few years after the death of this child, she had another daughter. But she, beca- she went from being this outgoing person to being this person that stayed only at home. As a result, she homeschooled her children. Now, she was not a college-educated woman, yet by the time I met her, Uh, Her eldest son was 17 years old and already just about to graduate from junior college, being homeschooled. She had a 10-year-old daughter at the
0: time. I I have three kids. Is she available
1: for (laughs) her? No kidding. She, I mean, extraordinary, right? Um, And it was only a few years after I treated her that she said the stroke had lifted this paralyzing depression. And as a result of the stroke, she now suddenly was availing herself to all this help that she didn't previously ever want. She just didn't want contact with people. And she started to feel this love and connection and this complete openness to being outside. The woman went on to, when I met her, She was paralyzed in her hands. She was using a walker. Her speech was unintelligible. Over time, her speech improved. She was very articulate. According to her, she's still not at her level of articulateness, but such a capable and articulate woman. Her hands that were once paralyzed, she suddenly started to be, not suddenly, over a period of time, began to crochet and quilt. She started donating her goods to battered women's shelters she went on to ride a bike and to oh here's a here's a great story about her too so she was getting dialysis three times a week she had a port in her chest and she swore that when she got that port and she couldn't take a shower or bathe because of this port and she swore when the port came out she was going to go swimming which okay that's pretty cool but the thing is, she didn't know how to swim. <laughs> she was 49 years old. Oh so she goes, she goes to the Y and she gets in the water and she starts splashing around and stuff. And I guess she was going there consistently. And somebody anonymously paid for her to take two swim lessons. So she took two swim lessons. And typical of this woman who can figure out anything, she Googled how to swim. And she taught herself the rest of the way by watching a Google thing and practicing. And uh, well, anyway, she—long story short, she now has been asked to compete competitively for adult uh, Adult Swim in a master program. Oh my gosh! And she does this before she goes. To dialysis treatment, or on the days that she doesn't—I think it's on the day she doesn't have uh, dialysis—because she goes to dialysis at four o'clock in the morning, so she must do it on the days that she doesn't have dialysis, three times a week. And I think, my God, what would this woman do if she had a kidney and was well? So, her life was radically transformed. And not that anybody wants to have a stroke as an upgrade to their life, but I've heard it time and time again. I've heard it from. People that were alcoholic that suddenly are not alcoholic anymore after this, and they say, My God, this stroke has been an upgrade to my life. Hmm. So, kind of talk about transformation or transformative experiences. These are just a couple of them.
0: Well, thank you so much, Segoina, for your time today and for enlightening us with your wisdom and experiences. It's really been remarkable to listen to. And I think that there are definitely some nuggets here that people will take away and be able to apply to their life, even if they don't have an illness or have a, you know, anybody in their life with an illness, they're really applicable, um, Concepts that people can use. If, if people want to find you, can you tell us where they can do that?
1: Sure. The best way to find me is on my website, which is hope hope-stroke, hope stroke.com, or my uh, email, which is hope after stroke now at gmail.com. And you're right, Amy. I mean, so many people that have read this book have said, uh, that they they all say these are applicable to life. Well, it's because I'm a life coach as well. And I've trained with like the legendary gurus of life coaching. So all those are best life practices.
0: Well, thank you so much again for your time. And I will look forward to airing this for everybody to hear.
1: Thank you, Dr. Amy, a pleasure.
0: Like what you heard today and wanna hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means?